If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From golden trinkets to glittering jewels, the artifacts from Tutankhamun's tomb are dazzling. But what about the boy king buried with them? Has the glint of gold blinded us to the historical reality and led us to overstate this young pharaoh's importance? Or did his reign mark a pivotal decade in the story of ancient Egypt? I'm Ellie Cawthorn, And in this new History Extra podcast series, we're marking the centenary of Howard Carter's great discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb by exploring the iconic pharaoh's life, death and legacy. We'll travel back to the ancient empire the boy king ruled over and re-examine the contents of his tomb to investigate what his spectacular treasures and mummified remains can reveal about living, ruling and dying in ancient Egypt. In today's episode, we're zeroing in on Tutankhamun's life and rule. We'll start by exploring some of the defining characteristics of his reign. We'll take a look at his family, health and lavish lifestyle, and finish up by investigating his death, delving into theories of murder, malaria, and even death by hippopotamus. To tell us more, I spoke to two Egyptologists who've both spent a long time trying to unravel the mysteries of the Boy King's life and reign, Professor Aidan Dodson and Dr Chris Norton. And the first voice you'll hear after mine is Aidan. So today we're going to be talking about Tutankhamun's life and death. So the logical place to start is, of course, with his life. Do we know when Tutankhamun was born? I think we can we can calculate back from his death at the age around the age of eighteen, so we can count back from that. But what that corresponds to historically is a matter of a certain amount of debate, depending on how you reconstruct the history of the period. But it does seem more or less certain, doesn't it, that he lived for a certain period of his life at Amarna, uh, probably at a time when Akhenaten was still on the throne. And that in itself allows us to say something about the circumstances in which he was uh, he came into this life anyway, this very, very interesting period in history uh, when uh, so much of Egyptian society, at least at the elite level, was turned on its head. I thought I'd better just remind you of a bit of context here. 
Akhenaten is the pharaoh who's widely believed to have been Tutankhamun's father. And as you'll remember from our last episode, he stirred things up in Egypt by sparking a religious revolution and moving the royal seat to Amarna, kicking off what Egyptologists call the Amarna period. And it's this fascinating and turbulent time that Tutankhamun was born into. Tutankhamun is generally remembered as the boy king. How old was he when he became pharaoh? And how common or uncommon was it to have a child um, as the leader? Well, he's probably around eight or nine, if one works back from his death around the age of 18 or 19, and we know he dies in his 10th regnal year. The appearance of kings who come to the throne before their majority is not that unusual. Um, in fact, if you look across history in general, most through the medieval and modern times, uh, these sort of things happen. So the idea of having a king who was not yet old enough to rule was nothing unusual. I think Aidan's absolutely right about that. And it's quite clear that the Egyptians, as in so many other societies, had had very clear ideas about the rules that governed who it would be who would succeed the throne. There would be a clear and designated heir, and that individual would have been prepared for the throne probably from a very young age. And, and in you know some cases, those individuals came to the throne perhaps earlier than might have been ideal. That was probably the case in the instance of Tutankhamun. Chris used the word probably there. And that's a word that will come up again and again in this conversation. Because there's quite simply a lot that we just can't be sure of in this era. The end of Akhenaten's reign remains pretty murky in the historical record. And the circumstances in which Tutankhamun came to the throne aren't entirely clear. But what we can say is that his claim to the throne appears to have been a strong one. He was, and this wasn't always the case, possibly uniquely the available male heir. There are certainly other situations in which there would have been other male candidates, possibly just on the basis of age or experience or whatever, if we consider those to be important factors, more suitable candidates. In Tutankhamun's case, however, he might in some ways have been the only person available. So it's likely that he would have been prepared from a really young age, even younger than the eight or nine he was when he took the, the throne for that role. I think I think any royal princes must have gone through a very specific kind of education and training because because of, of infant mortality. You know, even if you weren't the eldest eldest born, there was a chance an elder brother would die. So, and we know a certain amount about what what happened because we've got the tombs of a number of the tutors of these of these kings, of these later kings. Uh, for example, um, there's a the person who um, helped train the prince who became Amenhotep II, he's shown teaching him archery in his, in his tomb chapel. So there must have been very much a, uh, a syllabus for, for the royal princes, probably everything from sort of for, for literacy through to military abilities. And do we have any sense about how much power Tutankhamun would have been given when he was in this younger stage of his reign? Would he have been entrusted with decision-making or would that have been down to regents or advisers? I think probably it would, uh, until he was at least in his late teens, I don't think he'd have been trusted to do anything meaningful. And we have somebody who is appointed as king's deputy to basically act as his regent. So I think it's pretty unlikely he would have had major input to anything or final say in anything for, until probably not long before his death. 
I think we have to accept also that it is ultimately very difficult for us to know in the case of most kings to what extent they were really personally and directly controlling things and to what extent there were people whispering in their ears. And obviously that question is more pertinent when you have somebody who, at least by our standards, would have been, at least in the first part of his reign, far too young to have been making big decisions about a country and its economy and its building programme or its military activities. But I think that's probably also the case uh, more generally as well. You know, even if had Tutankhamun comes to the throne 10 or 15 years later, we have no real way of knowing to what extent he would have had the skills or even the desire um, you know, to to lead in a way that we would expect a monarch to lead. And the evidence doesn't really allow us to see that very, very clearly. So, you know, when we see Pharaoh at the, at the forefront of battle, we don't necessarily entrust that, you know, that that is a genuine reflection of what happened. But, you know, he's the figurehead at the, at the forefront of the army, not necessarily the person who was really genuinely there. And I think you can probably you know extrapolate from that 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 he may have been considered to have been the decision maker in all things and yet actually it may well have been that 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 the the real thinking fell to other people i just i think we just have to accept that we can't know that and i think it all de- this sort of thing depended on the individual king as well i suspect there are some who probably couldn't really care less about ruling and others who are really into it so i think as with most monarchies i think it depends on the individual monarch some are probably really keen on the minutiae of admin most of them couldn't care less and leave it to their vizier or other officials to do all that and sign any 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 dockets which are necessary as a young boy and teenager Tutankhamun was most likely not the person making key policy decisions. So who was pulling the strings? We do have evidence of a couple of influential figures surrounding the boy pharaoh. There is the general Horemheb who has the title of king's deputy. And I think he is formally the regent. However, also pulling strings is a man called I, who might depending on one's reconstruction of the genealogy, might be um, Tutankhamun's maternal uh, grandfather. And although he doesn't actually hold any operative titles during Tutankhamun's reign, he seems to be the one who is doing, say, pulling a lot of the strings. And there are a couple of scenes where, quite remarkably, I is shown on the same scale as Tutankhamun, which is completely unheard of at this period for a non-kingly um, person. So it looks as though you've probably got these two army generals. I, who is actually the head, well, he was, a, he was a charioteer, so a, a cavalry general, if you like, and then Horemheb, who is an infantry general, who are basically running the country. And I suspect possibly with a certain amount of tension between the two of them. Horemheb is the man who actually holds the title, yet I seems to be the one who has got a stronger role, even though he doesn't appear to have any title which actually entitles him to that. It's also very important for us to remember as well that these two individuals are the people who are going to succeed Tutankhamun on the throne, ultimately, as well. And perhaps, I don't know what Aidan thinks about this, but it's perhaps very interesting that I is so very visible in the burial chamber of Tutankhamun as the designated heir 
and successor of Tutankhamun, not only as an individual who's given full pharaonic titulary in that scene, but also in the role of the Sem priest performing the crucial opening of the mouth uh, ritual on the mummy of Tutankhamun, which is is going to revivify the king in the afterlife. And that is um that is a role which is played by the the sort of heir of the family in non-royal tomb scene and it, it makes it very clear that I is is the man who succeeds Tutankhamun but it, one wonders almost if that is I making absolutely sure that everybody understands that he is the successor precisely because of course he you know he's he's not the uh, he's not in the in the position of a, you know a normal heir, an, an eldest son. And if there was any uncertainty, it might well be because there was another candidate. That that and the obvious other candidate is Horam Heb, who would eventually succeed I as well. So so if nothing else, just just the fact that those two individuals then claim the throne shows just how significant they were during Tutankhamun's reign. So as you mentioned, it's difficult to unpick what Tutankhamun himself was pushing and what may have been um, at the hands of his advisors or his deputies. But what are some of the the policies or the projects that Tutankhamun's reign is remembered for? I think the first part is the reversion to traditional religion. Okay, so I'm going to jump in here with a quick reminder of some of the background to all of this. Tutankhamun's predecessor and probable father, Akhenaten, was a really crucial figure in the story of the 18th dynasty because he instituted a controversial religious revolution. In this religious revolution, he took the country from worshipping hundreds of different gods to prioritising only one, a disc of the sun known as the Aten. And interestingly, even Tutankhamun's birth name reflects this new religious agenda. His birth name was actually Tutankhaten in honour of the sun disc. And when Akhenaten died and Tutankhamun came to the throne, the new pharaoh, or his advisers, were faced with a crucial decision. Continue Akhenaten's religious project and keep up the glorification of the sun disk Aten, or go back to the old way of doing things. Initially, Tutankhamun keeps his birth name of Tutankhaten. There are objects showing him which are still in the full style of, of Akhenaten's reign. However, even while he's still Tutankhaten, the god Ammon, who'd been prescribed during Akhenaten's reign, comes back because there is a, a stela showing Tutankhaten worshipping Ammon and his consort Mut. But then there is a big change, probably somewhere around the third regnal year. Unfortunately, the the date is broken away from the crucial document, which always seems to be the case, but most people would argue for something about the third year, that a decree is issued in the name of Tutankhamun, with Amun rather than Arth in his name, which effectively, in sort of modern terms, restores the funding to all the traditional cults. There's a formal point where a decision is made to move back towards traditional ways of doing things. We're moving from Akhenaten's approach of there being a single single god, the Aten, to going back to the old approach of having multiple deities. This decision to worship a sun disk above all other gods had consequences that went far beyond religion. 
Akhenaten's religious revolution bled into many aspects of life and heralded in a whole raft of other social and economic changes. One of the most significant was the construction of a brand new capital city in Middle Egypt, a city called Amarna. It's a place where it's not only not terribly strategic in terms of controlling territory or resources, it's actually not terribly well supplied, either agriculturally or with, with water. So it's not a, it's not a really obvious place to build, quite probably the explanation for why nobody had built there before. And yet Akhenaten does manage in an extremely short space of time to build a fully functioning capital city with a population of, I think, the excavator Barry Kemp estimates between thirty and 50,000 people. And that would have been, at the very least, an extremely significant draw on resources. That's resources of, of, of people to get building and populating and operating a city, and then also of, of materials as well. So it's no great surprise that when Tutankhamun took over from Akhenaten and began to roll back his predecessor's religious reforms, this new city of Amarna quickly began to fall from favour. We understand that probably the main reason why it didn't last very long is that ultimately it was abandoned, and that is a part of the return to the old ways. And again, the sort of headline news of the return to the old ways is the restoration of the worship of Ammon um, and, you know, the consequent decline in importance of, of the, the Artanon, Akhenaten's religion. But it also involves the abandonment of that capital city and the revival of uh, the cults and the temples elsewhere around the country. And Tutankhamun tells us maybe a little bit of spin involved in this, that those temples had sort of fallen into ruin and everything was all terrible. And he made them not only as good as they used to be, but in fact much better than they ever were before. Of course he did. So there's at least a redirection of, of resource. And we, you know, so we can't, we can't really say much more than that, but that, that in itself already, it would have been a giant undertaking of Akhenaten and it would have been a very, a very significant you know, undertaking to have put that all back as well. And that at least seems to have been underway un under Tutankhamun. Again, we have to ask the question about the extent to which uh, that was really Tutankhamun sort of sticking his neck out and saying, oh, this is what I want to do, you know, for my reign. This is what I want to be remembered for. Uh, it seems unlikely, um, you know, given given the stage at, in his life at which this was taking place. But nonetheless, you know, it, 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 we can say that this happened on his watch. And I think that it's not it's not just simply Amarna that gets shut down, it's also the other Aten temples. We now know that the great Aten temple, which Akhenaten built at Karnak at the beginning of his reign, they're already reusing blocks, sphinxes and so on during Tutankhamun's reign. So actually a lot of this, the funding which there is putting back in the old temples has probably just simply been cut from the for everything to do with the art and, and probably all the costs of upkeep at um, Amarna. Well, I think it's worthwhile also pointing out, though, is although things move back to normal, quote-unquote, they never are quite the same again. Although the patriarch can really see this is in, is, in sort of, is, in, is in tombs, because tomb decoration and things like that, although it goes back to being sort of traditional, it's never the same as it was before Akhenaten's reign. So... Although we're getting a move back to traditionalism, it's a modified traditionalism. And I think that the the, th the, the thinking and whatever else has been going on theologically, artistically, during Akhenaten's reign is fed into the Restoration. So it's not just simply a knee-jerk sense of reaction, let's just go back to the past. They've actually gone back to the past 
but through the lens of what had been going on previously. And the Tomb of Tutankhamun and also the Tomb of Successor I particularly are unique in their decoration, probably because they are constructed in a period where there's an awful lot of rethinking going on. But I, I think you can probably see the reign of Tutankhamun as being one of real intellectual interest that there's probably massive debate going on about how to reconcile the old and the new. And really, a sort of new Egypt comes out of all that. Something that we haven't mentioned is that Tutankhamun's seals uh, were present in among the debris in King's Valley Tomb 55, which is, in terms of its architecture, a fairly simple Valley of the King's Tombs. It's undecorated, but it was found to contain some material of... Uh, the Amarna era, almost certainly material which was transferred from the Royal Cemetery at Amarna, Akhenaten's capital city, back to the Valley of the Kings. And again, it may well be that Tutankhamun's name was used to do this and that he was nothing to do with it. But interestingly, um, the one set of human remains that was discovered in that tomb, according to a, a recent DNA study, are the remains of his father. And, and I... You know, again, even though the evidence doesn't allow us to say anything really about this, even I find it difficult not to think that Tutankhamun would have been personally aware and involved um, in what it seems is the transfer of his own father's body um, into that into that tomb. And if anything speaks to a direct and personal involvement in the the as some sort of return to the old ways. The move of that material from an Amarna cemetery to the Valley of the Kings, which was bef- previously was was the Royal Cemetery and would become again the Royal Cemetery, that that I, again I, I find it difficult not to think that he was he was a part of that aspect of the of the return. And in in that, you know, I think uh, he deserves some credit. And certainly for those people who say, "Oh, well, he was very insignificant and nothing happened, and he was too young and he couldn't have done the thing," I think I think that speaks to a, at least a slightly more nuanced story. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Alongside this religious shakeup and its wide-reaching fallout, historians have also identified an artistic revolution in the Amarna period. The artists of Akhenaten's reign seem to have thrown out long-established artistic conventions. And by doing so, they set an experimental new precedent for those under Tutankhamun. And to some extent, it seems that Akhenaten or his artists had begun to feel that the conventions were restrictive and um, and and strangling creativity to some extent, and and this is why, along with all those other changes, religious and economic and social and um, political, there's this there's this great shift in art, the art as well, and things be, things are very very grotesque, relatively speaking, at the very beginning of Akhenaten's reign, and. I think my belief, and I'm certainly not alone in this, is that um, the reason for this is that they they simply wanted to to get rid of those restrictions and those conventions, and and that allows in a huge amount of creativity. And I think it's that 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 survives into Tutankhamun's reign. And again, if you want to see Tutankhamun as a great patron of the arts, and indeed Akhenaten as a great patron of the arts as well, then then perhaps he is the person who sort of supports the idea of of things not going exactly back to how they were, but actually. The creation of this new uh, new Egypt, I think that's a really great way of looking at it. Our experts have presented us with an image of Tutankhamun's decade-long reign as a time of both restoration and re-evaluation. While some of the revolutionary ideas of his predecessor were reversed, others were attained, offering up new ways of doing things. Now I want to do a bit of a pivot away from the big themes of Tutankhamun's reign and turn more directly to what we know about the boy at the heart of this shifting regime. Let's start with his family. His wife was Ankesen Pa'aten, later Ankesen Amun. She also changed her name around the same time as her husband. And she is the third daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. And depending on how you look at the royal family tree, she's either Tadakamun's full sister or half-sister. She's probably slightly a year or a couple of years older than him, perhaps. But again, it all depends on how one looks at the overall um, chronology. It looks as though the two of them had two stillborn children um, in the tomb of Tadakamun were found two uh, fetuses who died at the time of birth, both of them females, that's really it. And here we come up against more frustrating black holes in the historical record. Because as Aidan says, in terms of what we know about Tutankhamun's family life, that's pretty much it. But I did promise you we were going to talk about the pharaoh's life as well as his reign. And we must surely have something that tells us more about this, right? Nothing which is specific to him. One can one can infer stuff from what we know about some other kings. Um, the likelihood, therefore, that he would have spent his time sort of moving between various royal residences, uh, possibly spending the summer in the in the in the north where it's where it's cooler and things like that. But I think there's nothing you can really say. Well, uh, the one thing you can say is probably he did spend time at Gurob at the mouth of the Fayum, because there's quite a lot of material relating to him from the palace at Gurob. But that really just would reflect what we we think we know about Egyptian kings, that they tended to sort of get around a bit. 
There is the ostrich feather fan from the tomb, which bears a short inscription, which, if I remember rightly, suggests that the king was in the region of Heliopolis on some sort of recreational hunt. And it's been suggested that the detail of that story is such that, you know, it, it records a genuine historical event albeit not one of any terribly great consequence um it, it could also be of course that 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 in itself is just the sort of thing that you would expect a king to be doing and the sort of thing therefore you would expect to be recorded on an object of that type but it could be that this was the kind of activity that he was particularly fond of it's, it's not much to go on but one gets into some degree that the sort of Egyptian king had a lifestyle very much like a medieval European one, lots of hunting, um, you know, travelling around the country and things like that. But the one thing you probably could say is that because of the sort of military nature of the 18th dynasty, he probably spent time playing at soldiers in some form or other. And one of the big questions is whether or not he actually did go out into battle or at least out with the army or or not and that's you know there are depictions of him in battle against the nubians and the syrians the question behind those is how far those are simply the cliches of what an egyptian king was supposed to do at that period or if it did mean he actually did take some part in it whether or not he was indeed leading his armies or simply was sort of in the general vicinity when operations were being carried out. So we're working off these minuscule slithers of information that we're getting from here and there, but of course one of the major sources of information we have on Tutankhamun are his remains, his mummy. What does that tell us about Tutankhamun's health in particular? That depends on which medic you talk to. Genetically, he may have had chronic malaria, but that's probably par for the course of living in Egypt, um, full stop. Um, there is evidence for possibly a compound fracture of the leg which might have killed him. There's a question over whether or not he had a dodgy foot. There is sort of the CAT scan of one of his feet shows some um, inconsistencies. But Again, talking to different um, anatomists who've looked at it, some have diagnosed some fairly painful foot ailment. Others have said it simply um, was distorted by the um, in the embalming process. So as poor mere Egyptologists, it's a bit difficult to know. This idea of a club foot is something that's often brought up in relation to Tutankhamun, and it's used to bolster this image of him as a weak and fragile young boy. But just how significant was this impediment? Can we tell how much it would have impacted on Tutankhamun's daily life? Some people want to see this as a very, a very, very clear sign that he was in constant pain, had trouble walking, trouble standing. We often see the evidence of a, 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 a small trial piece. Uh, that's a small piece of inscribed limestone, which is now in um, the Egyptian Museum in Berlin, which shows apparently an Amarna king and queen in which the king is leaning on what looks very much like a crutch. And that individual has been identified as Tutankhamun and, you know, two and two put together, oh, well, he had a dodgy foot and here he is, you know, holding a crutch. Look at, you know, look at the poor, feeble young man. He can barely stand. Is it right that the objects that have been at least interpreted as, as canes or walking canes have been found as well? 
We also have a lot of walking sticks in the tomb. You can bring all of this together and say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, of course, this is this is obviously what it was. He could barely barely stand, he could barely even walk. He obviously fell over and broke his leg and that and that 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 brought about his end. But it's equally possible to say, you know, actually, as Aidan says, other anatomists would would um, would argue that, in fact, the clubfoot is is really it's really hardly there or, you know, that what we're seeing in the the CT scans and the other analyses of the mummy is, is, is actually the product of the um, the treatment of the embalmers. And in fact, you know, this really wouldn't have bothered him very much at all. We don't we don't know for sure that that injury to the leg had anything to do with his death. We don't know that that image um, of the king and queen isn't indeed Tutankhamun or it's somebody else. Even if it was, we don't know if that what appears to be a crutch is genuinely a, a support that was required for medical reasons or it's simply something to make, the, you know, the, the king's life easier. Ditto the walking sticks. Um, you know, there, there are an awful lot of them and that's, that is quite conspicuous. Some of those walking sticks appear to have been used, so you know we can't argue that they were simply ceremonial. But then we know that we know that cane sticks like this are symbols of seniority and authority, and we see routinely in uh, in Egyptian art, in various different contexts, individuals holding sticks not because they need them to walk, but be- because they're a sign of um, of a certain status. So I think you can argue both ways. And if I could just con- conclude on, on on this, there's a really wonderful article that was um, written a few years ago by uh, two colleagues of ours, Salima Ikram and Frank Rooley, summarising uh, all of the research that had been done to date on the mummy. And they list a huge number of different pathologies that it has been argued in the literature over the years that Tutankhamun might have suffered from. They they go through, it's quite funny actually reading this, they go through this huge list of things. And then at the end, they say, it is also possible that he suffered from no pathology at all. You know, so, so in other words, you know, there's been this huge amount of literature and huge amount of speculation. And the bottom line is, we still don't really know either how he was in life or how he died. While we're talking about health issues, I do need to to throw in one question, I think, which is something that always comes up when you're talking about Tutankhamun or ancient Egyptian royals inbreeding. Everybody wants to know, would that have had an effect on Tutankhamun's health or is it impossible for us to tell? I think the answer to that is we can't tell for certain. The problem with inbreeding is it sort of magnifies certain genes. It depends what those genes were to start with. Okay, it's generally reckoned that too much inbreeding has a negative effect, but you can't actually say, therefore, it causes X, Y, and Z, because it may not at all. It does seem that he was the offspring of close relations, but how far any of the potential problems were a result of that, we just can't really tell. But we can say that the, that he was his parents were very close relations, and again, he married his own sister. So it does indicate that all happens. But, but it's also worth bearing in mind that although to some level that, that had happened, it's not a universal thing in Egyptian royalty, although it's sort of often sort of, it's sort of presented as that in popular circles. No, there are some exa- there are plenty of kings who didn't marry sisters or, or, close, or close relations. But I think, again, very much as Chris was saying about his other um, any potential um, illnesses and, and things. If they are, if he's got any of those, none of them are obvious results of inbreeding. Let's leave Tutankhamun's life and health behind now to move on to another fascinating subject, his death. 
over the decades, there have been loads of different theories about what killed the teenaged king. So I asked Chris to run us through them. Sadly, perhaps still the most famous of these theories is um, that he was murdered, perhaps, because that's the most dramatic uh, and it has re- received a lot of attention over the years. This this comes initially from the 1960s uh, X-ray analysis of the king, which revealed that there was a detached fragment of bone within the cranial cavity, within within the skull of the king. And in fact, the, the team that did that analysis never made any claims about what that might mean, um, so, so I understand. But the media uh, picked up on this, and the suggestion was that, well, this must be because somebody thumped him over the head and that must be what killed him. When, in fact, as I say, the medical team never claimed this. Um, and, in fact, it was shown fairly clearly later on that actually the detachment of that bone took place post-mortem. So it's nothing to do with the life and death of the king at all. So murder's out then? Well, murder is not out, no, in that we can't we can't prove that he wasn't murdered. It's just that there's not a shred of evidence that he was. And of course, if he was murdered, of course, that that then leads to a whole huge body of literature over the years about who this might have been and why this would have been. And, well, you know that he was succeeded. He died very young. Oh, goodness. But, yeah, but there is not any evidence for it. We don't need to think that. The the injuries, of course, that we've talked about and, the you know, the possibility that he was suffering some, from some discomfort or mobility issues, of course, have, have been blamed as well. You know, was he just... Was he just very fragile, very frail? Again, you know, there are still people that would like to see that as the, as the cause of death. Malaria has been claimed as a, as a possible cause of death lately, but as Aidan has already explained, malaria would have been much more common in that part of the world in those times than you know it would be for us now. You know, those of us in, lucky enough to live in countries where it's not a big a big problem, there's no reason for us to think that that's the smoking gun. Yes, we can't rule them out, but Chris isn't overly convinced by either the murder theory or malaria. So what else does he think could explain a premature death like this? You might even have asked me to lead on this question because in the past I've been um, behind promoting the idea that he he was perhaps killed in some sort of uh, accident, perhaps even a chariot crash. Um, the mummy in its present condition is missing some some parts of the torso in particular and in fact several parts of the skeleton um along the front of the body essentially from the sort of shoulder line the clavicle line downwards um so some of the ribs are missing um a part of the pelvis um on on the left hand side along the front Um, apparently in a sort of straight line which suggested that that he may have suffered a a blunt force trauma which would have been sufficient to break the ribs and to do serious damage to the soft tissue underneath. And this perhaps explains why the ribs were missing. They were apparently cleanly cut, so so the theory went, apparently cleanly cut, which could only have been done while the bones were fresh um, and therefore a part uh, as a part of the mummification and embalming process. So in other words, this this was thought to prove that this accident happened during the king's lifetime um so we were then sort of left looking for you know what what kind of blunt force could be uh could be brought about by a linear object that didn't penetrate the soft tissue and so the suggestion was that this might have been a chariot wheel and in fact this idea was modeled 
by some crash test investigators who showed that if he was it was rather ludicrous actually if, if he was kneeling down uh sort of as if at the side of a road in a position that would have allowed one of the wheels of a chariot to hit him but no other part of the chariot then he could have been very badly injured on his torso but in such a way that brought about no head injury um, this might also have explained why apparently there was some damage to the soft tissue beneath the ribcage and also why the heart um, is missing as it as it is in the mummy and that is still that's still unexplained Anyway, it's, I've been I've been um, absolutely convinced since then <laughs> that the ribs, in fact, were removed at some time in between Howard Carter's initial investigation of the mummy in the 1920s and the subsequent X-ray investigations in the 1960s, probably as a result of the clandestine robbery of of the tomb and the stripping of the mummy of what cultural material, jewellery was left on the mummy by Carter for the very good reason that it was impossible to remove it. Um, it was essentially glued on to the soft tissue. This was some beadwork and some um, some some elements of a of gold within a within a collar. So that whole idea of a sort of chariot crash and, and in fact any you know the the torso damage being anything to do with the the king's life and death actually I think is out of the window. Of course the other thing the other great theory about the chest was a hippo it was attacked by a hippopotamus. And there, and there's still a couple of people who still sort of believe believe that. As you may have been able to tell from Aidan's voice there. Sadly, most experts don't set much store by the death by hippopotamus theory today. So if we can't blame an angry hippo or a rogue chariot wheel for Tutankhamun's death, where does that leave us? Well, it means we have no proven cause of death. The only one which the majority of of anatomists seem to think is this this broken leg, which... If it if it doesn't indeed happen just bef- not long before death, and if it's an open wound, a compound fracture with a with infection, seems to be the best option. If that is the case at all, if not, we have absolutely no idea what caused his death. Chris, what's your final kind of verdict? Would you go with the broken leg theory? Well, I think I think Aiden is is right, and that is the most conspicuous evidence we have from the mummy of anything that might possibly have caused the death but i but i i i I think we all desperately want to know what happened and yet we simply cannot it is not impossible that the king's heart just stopped we would never know you know and you know it's it's well known and generally very well known of course that that there are a huge variety of ways in which a person can die and for anybody to expect that human remains which albeit pretty well mummified by the by the standards of uh, of the of the time nonetheless human remains which are close to three and a half thousand years old would preserve exactly the evidence of, of what happened that's just again it's just not um not the case so i i'm sorry to say it but i i, I prefer to say the case remains open and that we just simply cannot know so for the time being Tutankhamun's death, like much of his life, remains a mystery. I wanted to finish today's episode by returning to a question that I posed right at the beginning. After looking at his life, death and reign, 
Just how important really was Tutankhamun? Is he only really worth remembering because of the bling he was buried with? Or, if his dazzling treasures had never been discovered, would his reign still be worth reflecting on? I think the certain the his knowledge um, no, by the world outside Egyptology is due to is just simply due to the bling. One has to sort of admit that. However, I think if you're somebody who actually studies the period, his reign is certainly very important by marking this transition back from the revolutionary regime of Akhenaten through to something a little bit more normal. But because of his age, how far he had personally any real impact on that is much more of a problem. It's possible he could have been a precocious uh, child who actually was deeply involved in all this, or he could have simply been an indolent uh, youth who preferred, uh, you know, girls, booze, food and whatever, and let Iron Horemheb get on with it. So it could be either of those things. I think say, his reign is significant, but whether the actual individual as a human being was significant, we can never know, I don't think. I would agree with everything that Aidan says there. I, I would just add, though, that it is a it is a fantastically interesting period, and Tutankhamun is he's not on the throne for five minutes. You know, it, it's the best part of a decade. It's it's around that length of time, and for that time, Tutankhamun is Pharaoh of Egypt. He is the person who represents the Egyptians' entire world. He's the divine intercessor. He's the he's the intermediary between the world of men and gods for the Egyptian people. He is the person who's keeping everything in in good order. And again, you know that that doesn't tell us anything about his his personality or who he really was. But for the Egyptians, he was the main man. We do, of course, know know him because of of his grave goods. But this is this is a time when Egypt is producing this fantastic material and the the tomb is again it perhaps you could argue it doesn't really tell us much about the the person but it certainly speaks to a time during which egypt is combined of vast wealth and also is able to call on absolutely superb matchless artists who were capable in, in of working all different kinds of precious material into some of the most superb pieces the world has ever seen at any point in in history. I'm gushing a bit here. And I, I think all of that is, it is important. Next week, we'll be delving deeper into Tutankhamun's family ties as we take a look at the woman that may have been his mother or stepmother or grandmother, Nefertiti. Many thanks to both my experts for today's episode, Dr Chris Norton and Professor Aidan Dodson. Chris's books include Searching for the Lost Tombs of Egypt and Egyptologists' Notebooks. And he's also written a children's book called King Tutankhamun Tells All. Aidan is Professor of Egyptology at the University of Bristol. His books include Amarna Sunrise and the upcoming Tutankhamun, King of Egypt. His Life and Afterlife, which is available to pre-order now. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks by Rob Attar and Rob Blackmore.